0: I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Power for Refugees, a two-part Undercurrents podcast special. From Afghanistan to Sudan and Ukraine, the world is grappling with the consequences that emerge when people are forced to flee from their homes. One factor that does not usually make the headlines is that many people displaced by conflict or natural disasters lack access to the energy services that are necessary for forging dignified lives and livelihoods. Since 2015, the Environment and Society Programme at Chatham House has been researching this issue and convening dialogues to spur action by humanitarian organisations, energy companies and others. Our Heat, Light and Power report provided the first ever comprehensive assessment of access to energy in refugee camps and urban areas with high numbers of refugees, and it's linked in the show notes. Since then, we've continued this work through the Renewable Energy for Refugees project, which provides access to affordable and sustainable sources of renewable energy and improves the health and well-being and security of refugees and neighbouring communities. In this Power for Refugees podcast special, I'll be finding out about some of the solutions tested by our project partners. In this second episode, we're looking at alternative sources of fuel for cooking. Approximately 81% of refugees rely on basic fuels like wood for cooking. This brings about major difficulties for refugees and for the environment, such as illness-inducing fumes from burning wood, the threat of violence to women and girls who travel often long distances to collect wood, and deforestation. In what follows, I speak to representatives from three organisations seeking to provide alternative fuels for cooking in displaced settings in Kenya, Niger and Rwanda, shedding light on what has worked and what has not. I hope you enjoy listening. First up, I spoke to Susie Huber from the Rwandan social enterprise Inyanieri, which pioneered a new model for distributing stoves and biomass based fuel which burns more efficiently than driftwood. I began by asking Susie to tell me more about Inyanieri's mission and approach.
1: So Inunyari was a clean cooking fuel utility company based in Rwanda. And what Inunyari did was pair fuel purchases of um, biomass pellets, which is what Inunyari produced um, using locally sourced biomass in Rwanda, and paired it with fan gasifying stoves. Originally, we were using the Philips stove, and then we moved on to the Dutch manufactured a mimimoto stove. And this combination of pellets plus the cook stove reached tier four, almost gas-like um, cooking experience for customers. And what ininieri really piloted and innovated on was um, how to reach the rural poor in Rwanda with a clean cooking solution. And the way that we did that was by creating a barter system for the rural poor who were collecting firewood. And we asked them to collect that firewood and bring it to collection hubs. And Inunyari used that firewood as feedstock for the biomass pellets, for the fuel that it was producing in Rwanda. And in exchange, that rural population got access to the pellets as an alternative cooking fuel to firewood, as well as this, you know, top tier cook stove. And we did that for the rural poor because it's very difficult to get really clean cooking solutions to populations that are collecting firewood. At the same time, we also sold the solution to urban populations that were spending cash on charcoal at that time. So we just asked them to replace the cash that they were spending on charcoal to access uh, Inuniri fuel and cook stoves. So that business model was really important. I mean, understanding that business model is very important and understanding how Inuniri then piloted that solution in a refugee camp.
0: That's fascinating. Before we talk about the particular activities in, in the refugee camp in Rwanda that you were involved with, could you just explain for listeners who might not be experts on this and for me, <laughs> could you explain why transforming this firewood into these pellets? Why, why is that a cleaner cooking solution? Because you're essentially using the same fuel, aren't you?
1: That's right. We were using the same fuel. However, one of the important things about reaching cleaner and better cooking experiences is also about achieving consistent or the consistency of the cooking fuel is also very important. So the pellets, what they brought in terms of benefits as a cooking fuel is that they were more consistent than firewood, for example. Plus, because it's compressed biomass and properly dried biomass, it also, in combination with this tier four fan gasifying stove, it also achieves incredible efficiency. So the reduction that was achieved by switching from firewood in a three-stone fire to the Inyanieri fuel and stove solution was about a 90% reduction in the firewood used.
0: We've kind of got our heads around the kind of approach that Inyanieri was was taking to this uh, clean cooking system. Could you tell us a bit about how you then translated that kind of model into the refugee camp and also why Inyanieri chose to do that, to to move into that space?
1: So. Inunyari's mission was to ensure that we were bringing a truly clean cooking solution to the most vulnerable. And I actually asked... Um, the founder and the CEO, Eric Reynolds, at that time, that was in 2015, he sent me off to a conference to go and explore how we could reach refugee populations in Rwanda. And I said, but why would we do that? That doesn't make any business sense. You know, we haven't even figured out how to reach our core customers yet. (laughs) Um, But it was part of part of the social mission of Inuniri to really reach the most vulnerable. And so I was set on that path, for which I'm very grateful now. Um, But so in 2015, we started exploring how to apply Inuniri's model in refugee settings with UNHCR, and really trying to understand how we could use either that barter system or another system to reach the refugee populations. Uh, So at that time, firewood distribution was taking place in the refugee camps in Rwanda. We knew from UNHCR that that firewood distribution was insufficient. It wasn't meeting refugees' cooking needs, and so there was a real urgent need to either supplement that firewood distribution or to find more sustainable solutions like engineering. So we understood the ask, we just didn't know how to do it yet. And we really wanted it to be a market-based approach. So really doing it from a for-profit perspective, not necessarily trying to find a profit from refugee camps, but using the business model, because the only way to ensure scalability is to ensure financial um, sustainability as well. So we wanted to make sure that it wasn't done on a, on a distribution basis. So back to the firewood distribution. First, we thought, let's use this barter system that we have with the rural population in Rwanda and apply it to the refugee population. If they are receiving firewood distribution it becomes their property and they could barter that with Ininyuri to access the cooking solution. However, we realized for a small proof of concept, logistically, that probably wasn't going to be a very good idea because we would have had to truck the firewood back from the camp to our factory and you know it just didn't make any sense. So then we started talking about I mean, at that time, UNHCR was also switching from in-kind distributions to cash transfers. So we basically discussed with UNHCR, well, if you want any year to enter the camps, let's push forward then this cash distribution So we started the proof of concept before cash distribution took place. What we wanted to show was, even though firewood distribution was still taking place, we wanted to show refugee households like Indianary Solution, and they are willing to pay for it. So we had received funding, a small amount of funding to pilot this. So we opened up a shop inside Kigama Camp in 2016. And we had sufficient upfront investment through this grant to have 100 households sign up to the Inunieri model. So the way it worked at that time was we gave the stove to the household with the agreement that they would come and make regular purchases of fuel of the pellets in order to recoup the investment on the stove. And through that pilot, we showed that households were very happy with the cooking solution. They wanted to pay for it because we did ask them to pay for the fuel, not the stove. They were able to pay for some you know, weekly payments for the fuel, but it wasn't sufficient for any to recoup the cost on the stove. So we proved willingness to pay, but showed that affordability was an issue. So the next step that we made together with UNHCR was to fundraise together. And we basically fundraised in order to be able to distribute sufficient cash to refugee households for them to be able to afford the engineering solution. So it was, I guess, an aggregated cash transfer according to household size, because the more people you have, the more you cook. And we piloted that in 2018. And the idea was to expand to the whole camp. So that was roughly 3,500 households for them to be able to afford aineary pellets and stoves.
0: That's really helpful. Thank you for setting all of that out. So, I mean, you mentioned that a lot of the, I guess, the consumers of this system were very pleased with the stoves and the cooking model generally. Did you find that actually take up was pretty pretty good? Were many people able to uh, to afford the system
1: in the clean cooking sector? We talk a lot about adoption, so the adoption of this new cooking yep. solution, and in this case. The adoption rate was very high in the sense that everyone wanted access to it. But then when it came to actually, I mean, adopting it fully, so not using any other kind of cooking fuel like firewood or charcoal, that's where we ran into, I mean, affordability issues. It is clear that fuel and fuel was more expensive than the free firewood that they had been receiving previously, and that the cash transfers were, although we had sufficient cash, and in principle they should have been able to afford the Inunieri part, the part that we had not accounted for was the fact that within this refugee camp, the refugee households were also receiving minimum food basket cash transfers from the World Food Program. And there was talk of ration cuts at that time. And so we saw the effect of that very clearly in the Inunieri purchases. So, as soon as, for example, WFP would announce, you know, there might be ration cuts, so really a reduction in their cash transfer for food we saw that immediately people would stop buying engineering fuel as well because I think that that's really one of the biggest lessons learned is that if the cash transfers from WFP, for example, within a camp are insufficient to meet people's basic food needs, if you are layering on other programming such as energy access programming, that gets heavily affected by that. So looking to humanitarian agencies to group together more these cash transfers in order to understand to what level are we meeting minimum needs, essential needs, and how much more do we need to top up in order for them to start accessing other services, I would argue also essential services like clean cooking fuels, because that has a big effect on health as well. But that's a discussion that needs to be taken within the humanitarian sector.
0: Yeah, thank you for taking us through those challenges, really. I suppose my question that to follow up on this was going to be, you know, how do we do things differently in the future to make these sorts of solutions sustainable and deliverable for the users of them ultimately and i suppose just maybe more specifically you spoke about this obviously being a market-based solution at the start do you think that that model was kind of vindicated through this exercise or maybe i'm being sort of naive about the numbers but would it not have been better for for UNHCR or for other NGOs or or aid agencies to simply just buy huge numbers of your biomass pellets and distribute them within the camp?
1: So I think what this example shows, and I do think, I mean, vindication, if you want to call it that, but what I, I do think that it really showed is that It requires very good partnership between the company, who I do think is best placed to serve customer needs. When we are talking about humanitarian settings, humanitarian agencies see refugees as beneficiaries and not necessarily as customers, while a company sees end users as customers and so that relationship has a different perspective and i would say the right perspective if you want to ensure that you are meeting your customers needs and understanding that and a company has a real need to understand that much better for example than a humanitarian agency i mean that's a whole other discussion, but I do think that that is what these market-based approaches show that companies that have a social mission can really bring value to the humanitarian sector, but that it requires very good partnership with humanitarian agencies. And I think that that was also one of the lessons that I definitely learned from implementing this program is that we had a partnership with UNHCR but then never spoke to WFP, and so we're caught off guard by the ration cuts that were happening through WFP's food budget. And so really coordination between humanitarian agencies for these camps is also very much required. I think the other thing that this program showed is that, again, around this, this cash programming uh, from humanitarian agencies, There is the ability of the private sector to see refugee camps as a market opportunity, as a customer base that can be interesting to them, perhaps not to reach profit, but at least to recoup costs of entering this market and really accessing very vulnerable populations. And I think that the benefits around having private sector enter refugee camps slash markets is that it does offer refugees the ability to make choices for themselves the same way how that that and that's ultimately what this cash programming is supposed to bring it's supposed to bring choice and it's supposed to bring dignity and I think they have definitely thought about that in terms of food choices but in terms of energy access choices, there's still a lot of work to be done. And I'm very proud of this pilot because I think that we showed that it can be done for for clean cooking solutions.
0: Absolutely. Susie Huber, thank you so much for joining me for this.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Next, I was joined by Benoit Moreno, Senior Coordinator of Interagency Relations at UNHCR in Niger. Benoit's team was involved in the development of a new fuel system based on liquefied petroleum gas distributed to -to hard-to-reach communities in the DIFA region. I began by asking Benoit to explain the scale of the humanitarian crisis ongoing in Niger.
2: So, Niger is is a country facing a lot of difficult situation, for sure, Uh, environmental degradation slash uh, climate change, but also uh, displacement crisis, uh, because the neighboring is not easy. Uh, North Mali, uh, East uh, Burkina, North Nigeria, uh, South Libya, South Algeria, so the context is not so easy, but the country is resisting, and and we try to resist uh, with the country. So the, the context where we implement our uh, gas intervention, uh, where mainly in, in border area, in, in areas hosting uh, quite a lot of refugees and, uh, and IDPs, and mainly in the Lake Shed area. So Boko Haram crisis to resume, uh, it's what we call a not of camp context. It means that there is no camp for refugees or IDP, and it's the way also the government of Niger is supporting his uh, hosting policy to avoid any parallel system for services, uh, to avoid any, let's say, area of of socioeconomic exclusion. So you have displaced, spread in a lot of villages, uh, cities across a region, let's say, as big as Belgium, with just one road, and with a lot of security, accessibility uh, uh, issues. So it's an area, as most of the area in the cell, affected by desertification, I think it's 90% of uh, of all the region affected by by desertification, and so a huge concentration of a population in uh, let's say fertile area, uh, and this concentration increased with the displacement. So this was the context of, uh, of intervention, a quite complex context. At this time, it was a quite a real war context, and so this is where we, we implement this this intervention.
0: Yeah, thank you. Could you tell us a bit more about where these communities were getting their fuel sources from before your intervention? What was the kind of energy mix?
2: So mainly cutting the wood all around the, the, the hosting villages and and and, and hosting cities. Uh, why cutting the wood is not that they are not engaged on the protection of environment. It was more that they don't have a, a, a solution uh, because the the price of food uh, with the crisis increased a lot. Uh, and so for a vulnerable households, it was, Totally impossible to buy this wood. Uh, we did a, a, a survey and we saw that wood after food was the second monthly expenditure of households. Much, much more before uh, uh, education or, or health or livelihood opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. And also in this region, there is no, there was no gas provider. The main gas, the main gas provider was 500 kilometers from the region in the biggest city. So the consumption of gas was mainly, uh, let's say, rich person or, or civil servants uh, who were buying the gas uh, coming uh, by by truck uh, to to the region.
0: Could you tell me a bit about why gas was the option that you went for in this project? What were the advantages that gas provided?
2: You know, in, in Niger, like in a lot of countries in the south, currently, I am Burkina Faso. Uh, since since 10 years or 15 years, there is a lot of innovative projects. Sometimes it's not innovative; it's just uh, uh, reinventing the wheel on uh, uh, ecological coal, on biogas, on solar uh, solar energy, etc., etc. But at the end, after let's say one or two decades decades of failure, we are always quite astonished. But the actors continue to repeat, to repeat, to repeat the same thing without using a lot of resources. We did quickly a little survey with uh, with the future beneficiaries, and at the end, everybody will say, yeah, we want gas. Uh, We know that uh, uh, ecological coal is extremely complex in the cell uh, because you need a lot of uh, resources, and you don't have resources. Or if not, you take the resources. For example, you will take the the excrement of the animals to produce energy, but at the end, the excrement of the animals, you need it in your land. So there's also a lot of balance between the farmer and herder, that uh, you can also disturb when you want to introduce a new source of energy. So we came to gas. And why we, we came to gas and quite uh, quite quickly at the end. It was just before just because uh, gas is much more cheaper than wood, two times cheaper than wood, two to three times, depending on the area. It was because also when a woman is using gas, she will uh, win at least, uh, uh, our survey was 70 hours per month, compared to using wood and including also the collection of wood. It will be also via the environmental impact. Uh, when we, we we did also with WFP and FAO colleagues some analysis on how much it costs if twenty thousand households are using gas, you are going to save per month eight hundred hectares of savanna type uh, environment. And if you want to do reforestation intervention or land recuperation on 800 hectares, it costs you 500,000 US dollars. So it was also the economic rationality to say, let's interest you gas to save wood, but spending a lot of money to try to rebuild uh, the, the nature. So it was in the same time, reflection on environment. It was also reflection on time saving for women. It was also a reflection in terms of increasing the purchasing power of also because gas is cheaper than wood, and because we are also a protection agency, it was because we saw that the wood collection was a situation at extremely risk in terms of protection. What we put in time behind the term protection was in most of the, of the cities, tension between displaced and host were during the wood collection of the illegal cut of wood. And maybe even more, even more complex, we saw that uh, the collection of wood by little girls was the main uh, situation at risk of rape. If you take the example of Burkina Faso, where we are going to implement the same project, in the, there is a, a region called of region, 40% of the cases of rape were doing wood collection. So the objective is how to ensure that uh, the little girls will not go too far from the shelter, and so to ensure that domestic energy will be present where they are.
0: Absolutely. Could you tell us then a bit more about the model, the actual approach that UNHCR took to roll this out? Once you would decided that gas was the appropriate solution, how did you go about making it more accessible?
2: We we put ourselves, and this is some, sometimes not so usual for humanitarian actors, but we put ourselves in a in a real business model approach. Our objective was not to ensure that uh, gas will be available at the time of a project. Our objective was to ensure but the gas will remain available and accessible in the region also at the end of the project. So it was a, a win-win partnership with the private sector. It was a region without any, any gas provider and also without any gas consumer. So it's a little bit the story between uh, with before the chicken uh, of the eggs. So we say, okay, let's move on the same time on the demand and on the supply. So objective is, was to go uh, massively, if you want to, to ensure that the private sector will come, even more in a very uh, far area uh, to, the system, to the capital of niger Niamey, it's 1,500 kilometers, in an area with uh, insecurity, uh, you need to put him in a good condition. So what we decided, and also, and this was interesting because we decided also with a donor, it was the European Union. At the beginning, we wanted to go just toward 5,000 beneficiaries, us all. And with the with, uh, European Union, we say, okay, with your office in India, we say, okay, let's go further. And we go until 25,000 of all beneficiaries. So when you know that you have all of these beneficiaries, after it's much more easier to attract the private sector and to ensure that the private sector will invest sustainably. It means it was not just to create some selling points, but uh, but really to invest on infrastructure, and the investment on a, on infrastructure is uh, is at the end uh, a key if you want that after the project the private sector will uh, will will stay. And so when we selected this uh, the company, it was a it was a national company, a Niger company. they understood that the market was huge, and they said, okay, we are going to invest. And they proposed us a solution, extremely interesting, and not only for Nigeria but. Uh, for most uh, uh, situations in the soil and in the countryside. It was little LPG station with a capacity of 10 tons and with an automatic system to refill uh, the bottle. So with their own funds, they created a five LPG station of 10 tons and one of 80 tons. And just us, as you and I share, what we do is to pay for the bottle and to pay for refill for four to six months, but that's it. And all the system, of refilling all the infrastructure, all the structuration of a selling point was with the money of this private sector. So at the end they invest more than what we do, uh, what we did to them, what we give to them. But now I'm sure they are quite happy to, to have done this uh, this investment.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So so tell us a bit about the adoption of the of the model.
2: What sort of results did you see in that sort of early period? So let's say that first of all it was. When we start with the project, uh, everybody uh, was thinking we were crazy. Uh, first of all, because you are going to introduce 25,000 of gas bottles in a context with uh, insecurity, So everybody was not so confident. So we work a lot also with uh, with police uh, and militaries on the ground for them to be reassured about the process. We work a lot also with them and also with the private sector to know where we are going to put this LP, LPG station sometime in the ground in a secure area. We work a lot also with them. As soon as you want to be a, a, a gas seller in Nigeria, like a not-of-country, you need also to be clean, judicially. So we work also we work also on that. So this part was was quite uh, heavy, important, but at the end, everybody was confident. Then we saw that also when people were saying to us, "You UNHCR sure is not possible. People are coming from the countryside. They are not used to use gas, blah, blah, blah. At the end, we saw that uh, it was not so easy. To, to support the this using of food to using gas because a woman saw the rationality in terms of time the rationality in terms in terms of money so it was not not so complex but also it was also important for us to not have to have a, let's say a humanitarian footprint as soon as you are classical humanitarian intervention you distribute yourself sensitive with NGO uh, etc you do too much focus group et cetera uh, you have a, a, too much uh, big uh, humanitarian footprint. What we try to do is to say, okay, let's uh, not involve NGO on this. It will be just re share with uh, good national colleagues with uh, a very good knowledge of, of the region. Let's put a committee to implement the intervention with local authorities, mayors, traditional leaders, uh, technical services of the states, environment, trade, energy, etc. So this committee... To, to, to follow all the implementation and further sensitization using a totally community-based approach. I mean, for sure, the involvement of a traditional leader, local elected mayor, et cetera. But let's recruit in the community, in the community, hundreds of workers who are going to be paid for two to three months, like an intelligent cash-for-work activity, I want to say. They are going to be paid for two or three months, and they are going to follow, each, or, each of them, 100 households we don't care if they know how to write or not. It doesn't matter because we elaborate a simple uh, sheet to monitor. And let's do door-to-door sensitization to see, is it okay if the woman is using the, the gas? is uh, the family understand the economic rationality of the gas? Uh, is it easy to do the refill, et cetera? So to adjust regularly the intervention, we set up also a green line. Uh, it was not the most used tool because we are in, in an area where not everybody has, has a phone, but all of this community-based sensitization was, was quite uh, uh, efficient. So this is, was a good element. After there is also failure. And this is important also in the humanitarian community that uh, we accept failure to better do later. In terms of failure, I think that maybe we were too ambitious. Uh, we were too ambitious because... Uh, at the end, it was close to 40 to 50 sites and villages targeted with villages, with the security situation, which deteriorated uh, during the, the intervention. So you have a lot of people who move. And when you move, you will not take your shelter. You will not take your bottle of gas. Uh, you just want to take a few you have, maybe children for sure, your animals, if you have animals, etc. So a lot of people have been obliged to move and, and let the, uh, the bottle. Uh, The second element, and this is really, uh, for me, the main issue that we have to fix in the next intervention. You have different type of bottle of gas, 12 kilograms and 6 kilograms. And also there is a little one of 2.75 kilograms. As we invest on the 6-kilogram bottle. If you want to do the refill of a 6-kilogram bottle, it's like, let's say, to resume to 3 US dollars. It's 2,000 CFA, 3 US dollars. But if you are extremely vulnerable, it's extremely complex to do the refill and to have free US dollar on your pocket. So at the beginning, we pushed a bit the private sector to go back with uh, one of the bottles they use when they start with the gas in Niger, it was this 2.75 kilogram bottle. uh, But they were not so supportive uh, to reintroduce this bottle because they said this is too complex and they need to buy new bottles from from, uh, other countries. So Now in Burkina, take into consideration this, uh, what we want to, to invest on in this 2.75 kilogram bottle because it's much more easier for a vulnerable or to refill. But at the end, if one person not, does not have three US dollars in his pocket to refill, we will say, hey, look, keep, keep the bottle on your side. And as soon as you will have three US dollars, you will refill, but do not sell the bottle because the <coughs> bottle is a patrimoine. For, an, for somebody to, who don't have any, any phone, the bottle is a patrimoine. And that's why if people are not using gas in the cell, it's not because of the price of the refill at the end, or it's not because of what is going to cost monthly because the gas in most of the region of Niger and Sahel is cheaper than wood. But why people are not using gas is the bottlenecks, bottleneck of the first investment. It's this six kilogram bottle and all the accessories, etc. Because this is costing 40 US dollars. So it's, it's, we, we, we are in a totally absurd situation. It means that a rich person, because a rich person has the capacity to buy, to do the first investment, this first bottle of six kilograms, will have less expenses in terms of domestic energy than a poor person, because this poor person cannot buy this bottle of six kilograms. So this is what we, we invest on the project. It was just to break the bottleneck and to ensure that as soon as a author has this bottle, okay, he can start using gas.
0: Yeah, that's super fascinating. And yeah, I can totally see how difficult that must be for the communities involved, you know, the individuals, if there is that big upfront cost that is just so insurmountable. I would just like to ask, as we come to the end, you mentioned that you're hoping to run a similar initiative in Burkina Faso as well. I just wonder, you've covered some of the obstacles there, but what are you learning between those two initiatives? What are you going to be changing in your approach
2: in Burkina Faso versus Niger? In Burkina Faso, we are going to, to insist a lot in, this, uh, in the possibility to have more little bottles, 2.75 kilograms bottle to ensure that for the most vulnerable, the refill will be easy. I think what we are going also to do, maybe compared to Niger, where we invest in a lot of different cities and villages, we are maybe to, to focus on five to maximum ten villages uh, because it need to be massive uh, to really uh, support a change at community, at community level, and change also in in the protection of environments because you cannot pretend or encourage community to protect the trees if you don't offer alternative. So it's better that to invest a lot in in, in some precise sites and villages to then uh, have an impact. And for sure we will uh, we will try to maybe more uh, support additional actors to come in, uh, for example, uh, land regeneration, reforestation, uh, etc. So it could be FAO, WFP, or, or project of, of the state, but for more complementary action around. But apart from that, I think that for me, the, what we will change maybe is, is more of the advocacy towards the humanitarian community. Maybe we thought in Niger, that the humanitarian community will appropriate a bit more uh, this kind of intervention. Sometimes we give food to somebody, but nobody has the capacity to buy wood. Uh, in another context, we, uh, it was for Malian refugees. Uh, we introduced also gas, and uh, we introduced gas because it was a camp context. We introduced gas because we saw uh, that the refugees were selling part of a food ration to buy wood. We also we were saying that the malnutrition rate were increasing, and it was increasing because they were selling a part of a ration to buy wood. So it's absurd. So for me in the cell, you are obliged to couple food distribution with domestic energy support, and with all also our core relief item distribution, non-food item distribution. It's the same. We need to have also a domestic energy component inside, and maybe it's also to change the mentality to change uh, the way we are doing our classical plan, what we call humanitarian response plan. We have a chapter on protection. We have a chapter on shelter. You well, a chapter on wash, but there is no chapter in domestic energy, even less in environment. So maybe in the context of Sahel, we want to see, we should see, even if we, we are not obliged to create a new chapter about how this thematic, extremely central in the everyday life of a displaced, where we should put it, could be protection, it's fine. I was speaking about the impact of gas in terms of decreasing the risk of rape, political, could be fine. It could be close to food security. It's fine. But we need a strong, strong change on mentality on the way we approach domestic energy in the side of context.
0: Yeah, thank you for putting it in that bigger context. That's that's really, really helpful. My my last question, and it may be too soon to tell, so no worries if we're not sure, but obviously here in Europe, the big preoccupation in the news is is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we're starting to see also, with the kind of economic fallout of that, that there are going to be knock-on effects for the price of energy and also the price of food. I, I just wondered, obviously, as someone who's working in the Sahel context, is that something that is potentially going to affect your calculations for these sorts of models? Are those price rises going to be something that you have to really factor in, or is it not so, going to ripple
2: down to such an extent? So, the, the price of of food in the Sahel well was. Uh... Increasing before the, the crisis in Ukraine, uh, so it's something that is quite uh, uh, regular year after year. Uh, you will see at one point, so during the what we call the uh, the, the soudure, so the season between the two rainfall, the prices are increasing. But you saw that after this, they never uh, decrease as uh, at the level of before. And now you have some some countries who are paying attention of that. So the increase of food prices. It's quite classical, unfortunately, in, in the cell. And also what is, uh, for us, one of the big issues is that these countries like uh, Niger and-, and Burkina Faso, because they are facing a huge security crisis, are facing also huge economic crisis. So you have less, in- less income, less job opportunities, less access to land, because displacement, security, or pressure on the land. If you take the example of, of a gas, I was discussing some hour before with colleagues in, in north Burkina Faso. They told me that the price of the, of the gas was 20% higher than it should be, and it's more because the trader who bring the gas in this area they need also to secure uh, the transport. So let's say that we have also this huge uh, endogenous uh, dynamics uh, who put pressure on the on the, on the uh, purchasing power of of, of the population. And at the end, that's why also we think that to to invest of gas is rational because we have so much issue and maybe the impact of the the situation in Ukraine will have the impact on the funding of the sale. Uh, We don't know. Uh, But what we saw that it's it's, it's tremendous, the volume of of displacement. So we need to be extremely rational in what we invest. And if you support one or all in a city to use gas instead of wood, you will decrease its expenses. So sometimes for us, it's better to see uh, how to decrease the monthly expenses than thinking on supporting everybody in economic opportunities because we do not have the money on that, and we will not have the money now. So we think that we, go, we need to go toward more economic rationality on our intervention, and, for, and, and gas is a leverage for that.
0: Benoit Moreno, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks a lot. For my last interview, I spoke to Cyrus Matua from the Kenyan social enterprise Sanivation. Primarily a sanitation business, Cyrus and his team developed a new fuel source through chemically treating waste collected at Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. To kick off, I asked Cyrus to tell me a bit more about Sanivation and its method.
3: Yeah, thanks Ben. So Sanitation we are a social enterprise uh, and we partner with local government uh, to be able to develop and operate citywide sanitation infrastructures and uh, delivering clean, safe and efficient sanitation uh, services uh, to both urbanizing and uh, humanitarian um, uh, uh, contexts within East Africa. Our mission is to be able to improve dignity, health, and the environments of these communities. And as um, here in Kenya, particularly, we have been uh, operating since uh, 2014. And uh, over the past seven years, we have designed, implemented, and operated improved sanitation interventions across the value chain from toilets to waste collection to treatment and reuse. As well as helping our cities create uh, citywide inclusive sanitation plans and clear monitoring and evaluation plans to be able to implement all these implemented interventions. So that's what we do at Sanivation, and we are best here in Kenya. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Could you tell us a bit more about the
0: particular system that you've pioneered? Obviously, ultimately, you're a sanitation organization, but this episode of our podcast is all about. Cooking fuel, and so just tell us a bit about you know how
3: those two things interact for you and and what the link is there. In reference here, we'll speak about our work that we did in Kakuma refugee camp. So there were two approaches that we were looking for Kakuma. One basically was to be able to address the sanitation challenge, and at the same time, to be able to address uh, the deforestation uh, challenge and. In Kakuma specifically, when we look at the sanitation challenge, there was a challenge in terms of addressing, you know, like in Kakuma refugees camp, they use pit latrine for their uh, sanitation uh, purpose. And what happens is that um, because the camp is always, the population keeps on increasing. And as we all know, the pit latrine, once it fills up, it has to be, you know, uh, decommissioned covered, and then uh, find another place to dig a pit latrine. So for this reason, we developed a system that could be able to address the entire sanitation value chain. And by sanitation value chain here, I mean, first, we are able to design, construct uh, what we are calling container-based toilets. And these container-based toilets, basically, these are toilets that are above the ground. So some of the challenges the Pitlatrain train had was that um it had to be dug and we all know like in in Kakuma refugee camp uh, there is a very rocky ground that is very difficult to dig as well as the area is always prone to uh, floods and when it rains the water will just um, you know uh, get into this pitler train and then the works will so, so we were looking at a, a, a solution that will be able to address this. And uh, that's why we were able to construct and deploy over 500 uh, above-the-ground toilets. And these high toilets basically will be able to mitigate risks of water overflowing and water contamination due to high water table, as well as we'll be able to collect uh, the waste by our trained team of refugees and the host community, every week, uh, twice a week, they will come, empty the waste from this toilet, transport it to a waste treatment plant that we installed in Kakuma, where the waste will be able to be treated. So this waste will be treated to temperature above 65 degrees for a minimum of three Hours And this basically meant it is effective, means it was safe and the fecal waste uh, will was safe to be reused. After the waste will uh, pass the, 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 the treatment test, then we'll be able to combine with the biomass, in this case, which is charcoal dust, and then to make a reuse component, which was here a briquette, a carbonized briquette that will be used, that we sold to household. Uh, so that uh, in alternative to charcoal and firewood uh, which was uh, cheaper uh, and produces less emission through uh, compared to other cooking energy so that's how we combined and by so doing we were able to manage to for every ton of briquettes that we produced we were able to save 88 eight trees and that's how we are able to really address the both challenges of sanitation, but as well as looking at a more sustainable uh, sanitation solution, uh, we're bringing in a reuse component, which is this case was the charcoal briquettes. I
0: wonder, could you tell us a bit about the process of getting it adopted by the users? Did you find that there were any difficulties in getting people to to actually agree to have this system? Like, were they not sure? You know, I mean, I'm just thinking maybe I wouldn't want necessarily to be burning feces, even if it has been
3: hygienically treated. Yeah, Um, Yeah, definitely. But I, yeah, yes, that was one of the biggest challenge I'll say. Um, And I think it's all, I'll say more psychological because as I mentioned, uh, one of the critical part was that from the toilet, we'll bring, we'll treat the waste, and we'll pass all these um, uh, measures uh, that had been put in place just to make it safe. And basically, for us to be able to manage to sell these briquettes, there was a lot of community participation and engagement. In this case, what we did before we do any sales, uh, we'll do like an actual demonstration of this fuel and uh, explain the state through the the users, especially we were targeting a lot of women and also businesses, looking at how we come about, how the briquettes are produced and to some extent, a lot of people will come to our treatment site and just to be able to see how this is done. With time, we found out a lot of acceptance because of the quality of these briquettes. Uh, by word of mouth, uh, many people will will see the benefit of this and that's how we managed to, to address that challenge and I'll say it's keep on reminding and keep on participating and engaging and collecting a lot of feedback uh, from the users on the same.
0: Thank you and so could you tell us a bit about how successfully it was adopted? Did you find that people were receptive after time when you educated them on the model and, and has it
3: become a sustainable source of fuel? At first, yes, we had that challenge uh, because when we began selling the briquettes uh, for the camp, we began what they normally call like blocks because these are areas that have been divided according to to the camp. So we'll sell with that particular block. Over a period of, uh, I'll say, one month, we were covering the entire zone. Uh, this is now like more of uh, the Kakuma uh, one that had, uh, say, around maybe uh, above uh, 15 uh, blocks. So with time, that was the reception. Because uh, as I said, one of the key advantages for these uh, briquettes was that um, it could burn longer uh, compared to the normal charcoal, which uh, meant savings to the, especially to the business owners, and also to to the households. So. At that particular point i'll say maybe one of the biggest challenge uh, that we have it's more about the distribution and the logistics so there is a market and the, there was a market uh, for briquette but it was very spread out as i said uh, kakuma alone is a home for almost over 250000 plus refugees and for every an average buyer will buy between uh, one around two kg per day you know that meant a lot of challenging if you want to cover the entire camp and even if you're looking at around selling around 40 tons so that's a lot so the system itself because it was challenged to 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 have a distribution channel that could reach the entire camp so we could not be able to sell as what we had required there is another challenge that um, in the camp there was always a provision of free firewood to the refugees, right? And um, for our briquettes, we were selling uh, 20 shillings. That's less than a dollar here in Kenya. And what happens is that um, it's difficult to really compete uh, with free provision, right? And sales declined. Every time there was a free distribution, you could just see the sales go down.
0: My final question really is just, if you were advising... Social enterprises or aid agencies on how they might pursue similar models in similar contexts to the work that you've been doing, do you think there are any kind of key lessons that you would recommend they bear in mind to make it a success and to make it sustainable in the way that perhaps this particular project has
3: struggled to really maximize its potential? yeah, and I will still reference these three key challenges, and I'll just. Look at, one, the distribution channel. If there is any existing distribution channel that one can ride on it, especially in the humanitarian context, please do. But distribution is something that you can really need to be looked at a lot. For Maybe for the challenge for the free uh, fire distribution, maybe I-, I will look at into more empowering the refugees economically so that they can have increasing high purchase. And maybe one of the key things, and I know uh, this is what is being piloted, it's having the uh, cash-based interventions whereby the refugees or people concerned are given some money and they can make a decision based on any fuel they want to buy. And then maybe third option is looking at large uh, off-take agreements, you know, uh, for the fuels, uh, trying to sign as much as, you know, like uh, off-take agreements, because this will be able to guarantee in terms of your sales and uh, as well as, uh, you know, uh, your margins. So uh, I think those are the critical things I I would like to uh, mention as key of the key lessons that also we learned and we are borrowing it even in our future projects.
0: Thank you very much.
3: Yeah, Cyrus, thank you for your time today. Thank you for your work. And it's it's been great to hear more about Sanivation. Thank you so much, Ben, uh, for having me.
0: And that is it for this episode of Undercurrent's Power for Refugees. Thank you so much for listening to the end. I really hope that you found this a useful episode and also a good companion to the first episode on access to electricity, which should also be in your feed if you've not already heard it. We'll be back to our regular episodes later this week. We've got another great episode coming up on the War in Ukraine miniseries with my colleague Ned. If you want to find out more about the work that the Environment and Society Programme at Chatham House has been doing on energy access for refugees or on climate change and sustainability issues more generally, please do visit our website www.chathamhouse.org or follow us on Twitter at ch_environment. environment. Till next time, thanks very much for joining us.